While cruising along the interstellar Devopsian quadrant, the Datanauts' Dreadnought-class battleship has encountered a new oddity. Much like a starbase, this database object seems to house a vast amount of knowledge in the form of characters, numbers, and cat meme gifts. This is definitely worth digging deeper into. Helmsman, set a course for SQL Server databases at full impulse. Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And my snazzy co-host, Ethan Banks, he's at EC Banks on the Twitters, is currently squatting in a cave along the side of a mountain somewhere in northeastern U.S. I wish him well. He will not be on this particular episode. You are listening to the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. So before I begin, obviously, we'll be talking a bit about SQL Server. And let's introduce our special guest today, Mike Fall. How's it going, buddy? Going well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome to the show. For those that are listening and uh, want to know a little bit more about you, who are you? What do you do? What do you like to do? Yeah, so my name's Mike Fall. Uh, work at a company called Rubrics. Some people may have heard it as a database solutions engineer. Was basically a DBA for about 17 years, focusing on SQL Server, which is a weird place to get to because you know, I went to school actually to study music performance at CU Boulder. Came out and I still play. But now it's, it's all about SQL Server databases, data engineering, automation around that. That's really what gets me up in the morning. Right on. Yeah, and, and we work together, and I've noticed that uh, you're quite apt with the database world, and you definitely come in quite a few times and help me with the PowerShell code that we do. So wanted to bring you on to, to kind of deep dive and level set a bit on SQL Server because it's honestly, it's a topic that we've had several requests for, specifically databases, but we haven't taken the time yet, so let's do it. To begin, let's kind of level set on SQL Server. Specifically, we'll be talking, I think, a bit about Microsoft's version of it. But I thought we'd start with kind of the differences between relational databases and the other types of, you know, NoSQL, non-relational, whatever. Can you can explain kind of what that is? Sure. Uh, well, let's start off with relational databases. So relational database theory um, was actually written back in about 1970 by a gentleman by the name of E.F. Codd. And uh, basically, the idea was, is we needed to store data. But of course, at that time, storage was very much at a premium. And so they designed this relational database construct to store data in an efficient manner, basically to reduce uh, duplication in your spreadsheets or your text files, you know, minimize it down into tables with key relationships in order to maximize the amount of data you can store. And that's that's really what a relational database is. It's a series of objects, tables for the most part, that have relations between the two of them, usually what are called keys. And these relations basically define, okay, maybe I've got a person who is related to three or four different phone numbers, or maybe in the case of today, three or four different email addresses. And we don't want to store that person with the email address each time. So we build a relationship between the two. And that at the fundamental level is what a relational database is about. Obviously, after 40 years or so, there's a lot more to it and there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah. But that's where you get started. So, so they're just fancy spreadsheets. Tongue in cheek, firmly Tongue winking cheek. here. <laughs> Tongue in cheek, firmly winking. But yes, that in a lot of ways it is, right? But you know, as we've moved forward... Throughout the years, obviously, you know, we're a very data-driven society now. Everybody's talking about data science and data analytics, and we're gathering more and more data just on what's going on in the world. You know, when you start storing that in a relational database, obviously there's some efficiencies, but this is where we talk about the quote-unquote other databases, what people have called NoSQL or yeah. non-relational data structures. That kind of breaks my head because I'm thinking if there's SQL, what's, it's kind of like serverless. We know there's a server mm -hmm. somewhere. Is there actually SQL somewhere in a NoSQL database? Not really. So, you know, just to define the terms real quick, SQL, SQL, um, for the most part, is actually, it's an acronym for structured query language, right? The actual language for querying out data from a relational database. Now, it gets applied in broad brush strokes to the, you know, the relational database world, but at, at a fundamental level, there's there's kind of just some distinctions of the terms there. Now, when we start talking about NoSQL or what I've said, non-relational databases, these data constructs are mostly built around 
storing data in a way that you can retrieve it and manage it, but where you don't have these relationships for enforced. When you talk about a relational database and we talk about these relationships, a lot of times you do that to basically prevent bad data from going into your database. You know, for example, let's say I do have a user with a series of email addresses associated. Well, if I try to insert an email address into my email address table and I don't have a person that's associated with it, that insert will fail because it, it doesn't follow my data validation rules. And a relational database says, hey, I have to have this relationship or the data is not valid. Okay. So basically, you don't necessarily know if that person has a, a record yet to add the email address to, and that's why it would fail mm -hmm. in that case? Yeah, yeah. So as we've moved forward, you know, with data storage and data manipulation, you know, we live in a world now where we're rapidly ingesting lots of data and certainly a lot of applications, they can't wait on all those rules to be checked, or maybe we're going to check them at a later date. So NoSQL or non-relational databases have come out of uh, this, this need of, I need to rapidly store large amounts of data where I don't want to check the rules or check the cleanliness of that data. I just need to store it in a platform and manage it. And then I'm probably going to do data processing it on later. And that's where one of the hallmarks of a non-relational database is this idea of a flexible schema. In a relational database, your schema is pretty fixed. You know, what's the structure of the data? In a non-relational database, they're like, oh, well, we can add columns or, you know, fields or whatever we need to adjust the schema to. And maybe some columns will be uh, empty, some won't be. And this malleability, if you will, of the non-relational structure that's really what where the power is, but then you lose some of the uh, the strength where you don't have any sort of enforcement of business rules or data integrity within the non-relational database. Yeah, I was thinking that same thing. I'm trying to think why you would choose one over the other, and one sounds rigid but also consistent. Potential. I'm mm -hmm. thinking kind of cap theorem is something we've covered in earlier shows yeah. where you have consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. And and I'm thinking once. Yeah. What, I mean, what would be the use case to have this kind of messy? Is it just performance for the non-relational type database or other yeah, things? Yeah, I mean, well, think about it for like from a web logging perspective, right? Let's say you've got an application, you're generating thousands of logs a, a minute or even a second, right? You've got all these log records that you're generating. If I take the time to try and process that and clean them up to get into an, a, rela a relational data structure, my application might fail or just run slowly. And I don't even care really about the structure of it when I take that data in. I want to clean it up, process it, do it analytics later. So a non-relational structure works a lot better where I'm like, look, I just need to ingest this data, maybe do some work with it. But at the end of the day, once that data, well, I just need to take it in and I'll deal with processing it, sorting it out, cleaning it up at a later point. Mm, that sounds familiar to me. I was doing a project with Grafana and InfluxDB. And mm -hmm. what I liked about InfluxDB is I could just take seemingly random data. It was basically measurements I was taking of my vSphere environment. And all I was really doing was storing it so I could visualize it and take alerts from it in Grafana. So you're right. I didn't really have to set up the schema. I didn't want to have to like do all the front load heavy lifting because I wasn't quite sure exactly what was going to go in this thing. I just knew that each graph and chart and line and you know thing that was in Grafana needed to pull from a database somewhere. So that, that resonates with me at that level. Switching gears a little moment, let's sure. focus on SQL Server, because I think most administrators and engineers that are out there in the world have to use some ver version flavor of it, you know, whether or not it's managed by a DBA or not. And mm -hmm. I think maybe a starting point would be back in my day when, when I was working with a lot of these applications, it was database was just the core piece component that from a grand scheme perspective sat at the bottom of the modern application, you know, DB, app, potentially middleware, web. Is that still kind of the de jour way that we're building things and the reason that a database would be put into the environment? Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Again, every application you have out there is going to be driven by data in some way or another. And the database is the repository of that data. So when you start talking about how does that fit into the whole stack, it's still going to remain near the bottom of that stack because ultimately when I ingest data and, you know, maybe I have an app that somebody's working through a web app where they're filling out a form, I might have a middle tier that does some processing and manipulation of that data, but that's not permanent, right? That middleware is going to probably be transient data, stuff that's in flight as we're getting ready to write it down to that right. final repository. And yeah, the, the SQL Server database, in the case of like a Microsoft app, that's where your final repository is going to go. And that's, you know, Oracle fulfills the same 
niche, right? If it's an Oracle database or a MySQL database, ultimately everything's going to end up there. So yeah, it still kind of remains at the bottom of that overall stack that you're thinking of. <laughs> that, that was more just for sanity because I've realized as we do this show that I can no longer assume anything I was taught in school is true. So maybe, you know, the running virtual machines out of a database. I don't know. I just want to make sure I wasn't crazy. So now we have all this data that's in there in yeah. in this relational database. How how do you manipulate it? Because I, I tell you, I hear a lot of like T-SQL being thrown around and CLR and all these other terms. What's kind of the, the most common and maybe some lesser common ways to interact with SQL? Well, just as with almost anything else in the world, right, there are standards. And relational databases are defined by the ANSI SQL standard, ANSI, right? Again, going back to what I said earlier, SQL at its base stands for structured query language. It's the the language, if you will. Some people will debate whether or not it's a programming language, uh, but it's the language that you use to query data, which will use what they call data modification language. So making updates or inserts or deletes from data, uh, altering objects. This is the this is the at the base level how you interact with the database. So, now, so, you so you're writing in a language that's like SQL is like PowerShell or something. It's like you actually write to that language and that's how you interact mm-hmm. uh, yes. from a programmatic yep. fit. Okay, okay. Go on. Yeah. Now, T-SQL is Transact SQL. That's Microsoft's brand of the SQL language. So while it has the ANSI standard syntax within it and can support it, you know, Microsoft, of course, has added their own here we've got our own special functions that are beyond the standard and our own special operations within the language. Conversely, Oracle has their own version. They call it PL SQL. I think it's programmatic language SQL is what it stands for. I don't remember off the top of my head. It works off that ANSI standard base, but then of course they add their own functions and processes and they have slightly different interpretations of of the syntax. But ultimately it's all SQL at the base of it. So there's the generic ANSI approved, this is SQL, and that's how you write and structure ways to get mm-hmm. data out of the database. And then similarly, like Cisco and Juniper and whatnot, they have their own kind of spin that they put on various protocols and whatnot. Right. Is there an advantage? Like, do you have to use T-SQL if you're talking to Microsoft databases or is it optional? Uh, you more or less have to use it because that's how the SQL Server engine is going to interpret whatever you pass to it. It's going to look at it. If I go and type a a SQL statement, whether it's in a text file that gets passed to an application, whether I write it into .NET, or whether I just open up Management Studio and I'm typing in a query window, when the SQL engine receives that language string, it's going to parse it out in T-SQL using the T-SQL stuff. So if you put in, if I put in like a a PL-SQL syntax, it's going to puke on that, right? It's like, I don't know what this is. So... To answer your question in the long-winded way, yeah, when you're working with SQL Server, it's going to be T-SQL. That's fair enough. And kind of a final thought that I had on just the introduction of SQL and Microsoft SQL Server is I noticed that for the longest time, it was Windows only, right? Which kind mm-hmm. of, huzzah, I'm a, I'm a very publicly fanboy for the Windows platform. Yeah. Uh, and now it's, holy cow, you could use Linux, Docker containers, you know, these all these different ways to deploy it. I would imagine... This is probably something that folks listening to the show are bumping their heads against. Either people are asking them to deploy in different models, or they're just wondering what that looks like. So I guess first, what the heck? Are you are you seeing this? Are people using these other platforms? And is Windows still kind of preferred as the way to do databases? Because I'm imagining this is like the change is bad type portion of the data of the data center. We don't really want to introduce risk to the database. Right. Well, so a couple things there. So first off, yeah, with 2017, Microsoft has given people the ability to run SQL on Linux. Now, what's kind of cool about this is it's still SQL Server. Microsoft, the way they engineered it, they they built, I believe what's called, there's some sort of abstraction layer. I can't actually now remember what the title is, but there's an abstraction layer that they built that runs on top of the Linux operating system and translates all the, I believe, Win32 commands that the SQL engine uses to interact with the operating system. So what that means is, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's almost a containerized version of SQL server running on Linux. And what this leads to is, is basically SQL on Linux is pretty much the same uh, from a use standpoint as SQL on windows. Now, that being said, my kind of take on this is uh, I think Microsoft did this very much to check a box, you know, basically say, Hey, you know, 
They've been knocked for the longest time of, well, you can only run SQL Server on Windows. You know, Oracle would go after them about that. Uh, MySQL folks would be like, well, I can run MySQL anywhere. SQL Server has to run on <laughs> yeah, Windows, yeah. right? I think Microsoft did it very much to say, well, now that checkbox goes away. But I still think it's going to be a slow adoption. I mean, most people who have been using SQL Server have been using it on Windows. Uh, most shops out there have Windows they're running it. And uh, you know, to talk a little bit about the licensing, licensing cost doesn't change just because you run it on Linux. In fact, I mean, that's the thing, right, is if you ever look at your licensing costs, your SQL Server licensing costs are well above your operating system license costs. So... You know, the only money you're really saving is, is, you know, what you would be paying for the OS. And the SQL Server is still pretty pricey there. All right, Mike, I think we have a better understanding to kind of relational databases and SQL and how to chat and things like that. Now I want to open up your diary of a day in the life of being a DBA, because the major thrust of the show is to, to bust silos. And... Traditionally, I think there was a lot of, well, let's say friction between server storage network, you know, the people that are kind of doing the food groups of the data center versus those that are entrusted with the protection and reliability and performance and whatnot for the database. And I don't think that necessarily has to be the way it is going forward. So I wanted to talk about three different topics with you. We'll talk the first one is kind of reliability and what you're looking at, what you're thinking about, examples being... You know, how do you make sure that SQL's online? You know, it's doing requests. What are your considerations around making sure that it's available? All that kind of jazz. I would imagine that kind of keeps you up at night. Oh, very much so. So just to start from a high level, a DBA's primary responsibility is the company's data. You know, and I always kind of termed it as making sure the database is protected from a data protection standpoint, making sure that the database is available for querying by the users. And then finally, making sure that it runs fast. So kind of following with your reliability, performance, and disaster recovery items here. Because really, at the end of the day, the data is there, one, for the company to use, right, to manage the application. But it's also, it's only useful if somebody can actually get to it. Hmm, true. Now, we talk about reliability, right? This, is, this falls into kind of two areas, right? We talk about protecting the database, but we also talk about keeping it up and running. I think with what you're thinking about with reliability, right? And when we start talking about like clusters and availability groups, stuff that maybe we're replicating to other data centers. Yeah, because you is always all about... want a lot of stuff. Like you being the generic yeah. term, like every time I was dealing with, not necessarily the, the physical world, but especially the virtual machine world, you wanted mm-hmm. physical mode RDMs, you wanted nine virtual machines with 100 gigs of RAM and, you know, nine network cards. Yeah. It's like, holy cow, what's going on here? You know, is that Help me understand that. Yeah. Well, so a couple, like, again, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch kind of wrapped up in there. So first off, when you start talking about availability and stuff like clusters or availability groups, those are intended to basically say, if the server ever goes away, the database is going to remain up and running. And typically databases, they don't handle downtime all that well, right? Particularly with an application. You know, you've, you write these applications that are expecting second, if not millisecond responses, And so you usually build these failover architectures in the event that if the hardware ever goes bad, if the VM ever dies, then I can have this up and running somewhere else. And a lot of this also comes down to the fact that data is very stateful. You know, if you think about if I'm running thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of transactions a second, there's a rapid change going on with this data. It's very hard to maintain the state of that. So that if, if a database goes down and then I have to restore it or I have to bring it up, that's a lot of work. And so a lot of times these availability constructs are built to minimize the amount of downtime, to minimize to say, okay, it, you know, if I lose a server, I don't have a whole lot of impact from it. And of course, that you'd start to talk about the expense of going out. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of the movie Contact where, you know, they, the yeah. first ring breaks and it's like, ah, we'll just get to it twice the price. Like, okay. <laughs> And, and that's the thing. It, there's a, there's, that's kind of where I start to think of the cost of doing business. Because when you think about it, if that database is down, what's it costing to the business? You know, if the, if the application can't run because the database isn't available, how much does that cost the business? And that's usually where you start to have these conversations about, okay, how much high availability do I need? And how much is that going to cost me to how much is the business going to need this? Got it. So yeah. that's your consideration kind of at the the reliability perspective. Right. 
What about how you're logging all this? Because I know that something that comes up frequently when I'm dealing with the database server, especially when I'm kind of doing this as a as a solo cowboy for something like a vCenter server or something, is around the logging. And I would imagine that has some effect on reliability, you know, like the full, simple, bulk log, all that kind of jazz. Yeah. SQL Server has what's called recovery models, three recovery models, simple, bulk logged, and full. And really what these boil down to is The way a relational database works is you have data on disk, you have data in what's called the memory pool, which is the RAM, and then you have this transaction log, which is basically an ongoing log of all the activities that have happened in database. And you'll have some sort of transaction logging in Oracle or MySQL. Any relational database is going to have this. They just call it a little different. And this is actually, it goes back to the relational database standard and how it works. There's something called ACID compliance, uh, atomic, consistent, isolated, and durable. You know, if somebody wants to know more, it's a great geeky read. Go out and check out (laughs) um, ACID compliance. But at the end of the day, this logging is something that's built into a relational database, and in this case, SQL Server, to basically maintain the consistency of your transactions. Now, when we start talking about full, simple, or bulk log, this is really about the retention of that log information for disaster recovery. So if we're in simple mode, SQL Server is going to basically, as soon as transactions have been written from the memory down to the disk, uh, once you've hardened it on the disk, SQL Server says, okay, I no longer need the transaction log information, so I'm just going to clear out my transaction log. And this is usually done on a database that you may take a backup of once a day that you're like, okay, I, I can lose up to 24 hours worth of data with this database. The next one to kind of talk about, we'll we'll save bulk log for a bit here, but full recovery model is where SQL Server won't empty out or or drop or delete transactions from the transaction log until it knows that they've been backed up. So there's this idea of taking a log backup in SQL Server where I'm doing a bunch of transactions, they're going into the transaction log. And like I said, with simple mode, as soon as that stuff gets hardened to disk, SQL Server will clear out the transaction log. With full, SQL Server's like, okay, I've hardened them to disk, but they need to get backed up to some file first before I clear them out. So SQL Server's waiting on a user to come through and actually run a backup log, usually by an automated task, to write that off. And what that does for you, as I mentioned with the simple, you know, if I'm taking up a full backup every day, then I can restore that back. I can restore the database to once in the last 24 hours. Because you have every transaction that ever hit for that full day. Right. Uh, it's going to be, but it's it's basically like taking a snapshot. If I took a snapshot of a VM, I only have, I can only restore to what that point in time for the snapshot. Gotcha. Okay. With a simple mode database, if I restore the backup, I can only go to when I took the full backup. And all the With delta log- in between, I'm just, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, I only screwed. have today and yesterday, nothing in between. Whereas log backups are more incremental, right? So I can restore that full and then use the logs the log backups to roll forward to a point in time. And depending on how frequently I'm taking the log backups, you know, my RPO becomes, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes, however more frequently I'm taking those. So that's really where those logging and recovery models come into play. Now, bulk log, just to touch on it, is pretty much like full, but instead of logging each individual, certain actions are considered bulk actions or minimally logged actions. So we're not going to log each individual item in that minimally logged action. We're going to log the outcome of the entire process. That's awesome. I've, I've always kind of wondered what bulk logged was, but never chose that option because every application I've worked with never asked me to. And right. I know typically at vCenter, I'd turn to simple because I don't want the log to get big. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and something like a, a vCenter <laughs> database, right? You don't it, you're not going to care so much about recovering that to a specific point in time. You're like, oh, I can get that to the last 24 hours. I might lose a VM or two in the the catalog or something, but other than that, you're you're fine. But you know, with a banking application, <laughs> then I'm like, oh yeah, no, I I need to take those logs. I need to make sure I can recover that. No logs, full steam ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about performance. Um, sure. you, you mentioned earlier about millisecond or or potentially even less latency between transactions. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was kind of digging around, a few things that came to mind and I was hoping you could touch on. One is locking because that that tends to be thrown about all over the place, pessimistic, optimistic, uh, as well as indexing because that's a thing that tends to come up frequently as well. Oh, we have to re-index for performance and page Mm -hmm. files. Maybe if you can dig into one or multiples of those. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with the locking because this actually goes back to the ACID compliance. Again, the idea behind a database <laughs> is a database, a relational database was from the outset, you know, it's like, this is going to be a multi-user concurrent system. We're going to have multiple people trying to work with the data all at the same time. And the idea behind ACID compliance is to say, okay, I need to have, if I have a row in there, a record of data, multiple people might be accessing that data. And I have to make sure that I know what the state of that data is as it moves forward in time. So let's say, let's say I'm sitting down, I'm going to, we're going to use our example of the user who's got a three or four email addresses associated with them. And I'm going to change one of those email addresses. So I'm going into my application and I'm typing on it and you're querying those email addresses in another part of the application to see what they are, what's going on. Well, if I haven't committed the change, you shouldn't be seeing the change. Right. This means that, and this is so this is where a, a lock might come into play to say, well, a lock wouldn't come in for the select, but you would see the, the state of the data before I committed it because it's in flight. Now, the locking would come into play if I'm going in and changing it, and then you say, well, I'm going to change it to something else. Well, at that point, a lock will go on the row. If I'm, if I'm the first one in, there, a lock will get put on that row to prevent you from changing it while I'm working on it. Oh, so it's and, kind of like expressing intent, like I'm going to do something with yeah. this hands off until I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a variety. There's all sorts of levels of locking and different locks that can be placed. I mean, it's a very uh, involved system. But ultimately, what it's there for is to prevent the data from, you know, basically getting corrupted. To make sure that we understand the order that the data is being manipulated in. Now, to touch on optimistic and pessimistic concurrency control or locking, basically, optimistic. What would happen is is I would go in and be changing the email address and then you would go in and you'd also be changing the email address and we both would be able to change it. And then the database engine underneath would be able to recognize the order in which those changes were made and apply those. So it's optimistic says, okay, you guys can do whatever you want and I'll make sure that everything gets sorted on, on my end. Pessimistic says, well, wait a minute. Well, it's not going to let anybody work on the data, but one person at a time. So in a pessimistic situation, if I'm in and I'm working on changing that email address, you go in to change it. It's going to say, nope, sorry, lock. You're going to have to wait. And that's really <laughs> the difference. Think about optimistics and saying, hey, you know, I'm always going to assume that you can change the data where pessimistics like, uh, I'm not going to assume you can change anything. What about indexing? Why, why is that so important? And why does it affect performance in such a seemingly important way yeah. such a such a valuable way it's like a phone book right this is the common example phone book about who uses, yeah, about who uses a phone who, book anymore who uses a phone book anymore um, hold on my pager's think, going off no. <laughs> but if you think about like a phone book right if we had a table and it's got millions of rows in it and i needed to get you know a value out of that let's say that the it's the phone book and i'm going to go through the phone book and i wanted to get chris wall's number of course, everything's sorted by last name. So you're near the end of the, the phone book and the W's. Well, if I open up the phone book and I start paging through one at a time, it's going to take me a while to get to that W, right? If I start at the beginning and I'm doing what's called a table scan, I got to go all the way from the beginning down to the W's to find your record. An index, if I place an index on the last name, it's basically what you would like if you open up the back of a book or something and you had an index. It's just a way to say, hey, here's the page that Chris Wall is on. Now you can go find him faster. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, that's really all indexing is. The challenge uh, about indexing when it starts to come to performance, and this is where, you know, this is a lot of the art of the DBA of like, okay, how am I going to balance putting indexes versus not putting indexes is indexes take space and indexes require to be updated outside of the normal table. So let's say I'm inserting rows into this million row table. Well, if there are indexes on that table, I also have to update those indexes with any new rows that I insert or change. And is that part of a maintenance plan or is that something you're doing manually or maybe both? That, that would be something, well, a maintenance plan is basically an automated way of doing the updates of these. So indexes over time, and this starts to get really down into the weeds of how an index is physically structured on disk and how it basically fragments over time. Uh, an index rebuild is basically a defrag of the index. 
at the base of everything from a physical storage standpoint, SQL Server works on what's called data pages, eight kilobyte pages, and everything's stored on that. Well, as I'm inserting data, pages will fill up, pages will split, things might get out of order physically on disk. You know, it's just, it's fragmentation over a, a, a period of time. And so the thing is, is if I'm querying that index and I have to make all these physical jumps around the file system to find my page, performance will slow down. What this then means is if I'm going to rebuild the index, I'm going to defragment and I'm going to get into a nice clean package and it makes it easier for me to retrieve, you know, the index information off of those physical pages. So that's, that's what that whole maintenance is about and why we do it. Now, coming back to it, though, is, is that the other performance implication here is, is, you know, as I'm inserting data and modifying and fragmenting all these indexes, the more indexes I have, the more work has to be done to update all of these. Mm. So there becomes an interesting balance of how many indexes do I create? How many do I put on here? How often do I defrag them or, or rebuild them? Because the other thing is that's an expensive operation. I basically have to get all the data and rewrite the entire index. And if that's a really large table... That could be a really large index. So what you usually get is you get some recommendations about when you should do an index rebuild. I think uh, Microsoft recommends that if it's more than 30% fragmented, then you go ahead and rebuild it. But if it's less than 30%, then the performance hits not that bad. But that that's kind of, you know, a lot of this stuff just hit and miss on what's going on with indexing and the performance impact that it can have. Yeah, that's that's IT, right? There's it's always it depends and there's no one right mm-hmm. answer, but there are lots of wrong answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's you know, that's the thing is is that's what makes databases and designing databases so challenging. Because this is actually where I bring my music in when I start thinking about databases. There's rules to databases, much like there's rules to everything else, but there's definitely an art form to saying when do I get really tight on my relationships? When do I duplicate data so I have you know, less checking of the relationships, but the application operates faster? How many indexes do I place versus you know, how, many, how few indexes will I have so I have less rights to the object? There's just so much to it. Uh, it's a little overwhelming at times. Absolutely. I guess it depends. Some days you're the happy clarinet. Some days you're the sad trombone. Yes. Oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Going back to something you mentioned earlier around downtime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of things potentially are impacted when the database server is going down. It might have multiple databases and instances on it. A cluster is not a backup. So I assume you're taking backups regularly. I guess let's dive into that first. What what is your view on taking backups? Like when you were a DBA, what were you doing? Is this like a daily thing that you just had native tools doing? Were you integrating mm-hmm. with something? Is log shipping still a thing? I'm really dating myself probably. Well, no, no. So it's it's all down to high availability and disaster recovery strategies, right? And again, very much an independent situation. Now, just to step back real quick, you sort of touched on it right there. Like clusters are not backups. And that's a distinction that I always like to try and focus on, right? There's high availability, there's disaster recovery. There's things that I put in place to keep the database up and running, but then there's also things that I put in place to make sure that I'm protecting and can recover from a disaster, protecting the integrity of the data and then being able to restore it. And and those two, that's where the backups come into play is that disaster recovery. Now, log shipping is very much still a thing. If we talk about high availability architectures, you know, we talk about availability groups, which is Microsoft brought that around SQL 2012, where it's like, okay, we've got this kind of shared nothing clustering setup. We've had Windows failover clusters and SQL failover clusters for many, many years now. And that's a, a shared everything construct where you have multiple nodes, but you have one set of the data files and you can fail over to whatever node. But this, again, this will only protect you in certain cases. Log shipping is like the dirt simple, I need to replicate my data over into some other location. It basically creates a warm standby. It's very simple, right? I'm backing up my logs on one server and I replay them on another. But the reason it's still a thing is it's so simple and it just works. Yeah, that's why I knew about it because it was something I could do with very limited database skills. And it just felt like... You, like you said, you're just kind of copying over the logs and replaying them and just saying, I'm, I'm ready. I have these same, you know, I have the same state, but I'm in a completely different environment. Right. But then we have to talk about backups, right, from a disaster recovery standpoint, because these constructs are great. But let's say I have a cluster set up in a data center and then 
you know, a plane flies into the data center and takes the whole thing out. Well, that's not going to do my high availability strategy much good, is it? Yeah, the cluster's kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of killed off at that point. Right. But even on a less, you know, impactful situation, right? What if somebody comes in and, you know, some disgruntled employee who happens to have permission to the database comes in and deletes my entire customer list? Or maybe just through the course of operation, you know, physical, the physical disk system gets corrupted and, you know, breaks some of my data. My cluster is not protecting me against those scenarios. So this is where backups come into play, where if I have a backup of my data, I can always go back to, you know, a day before or two days before to recover my data. Or maybe if, like I said, the data center gets taken out and I have my and I should have my backups offsite, right? You know, that's that's like one of the key tenants of doing disaster recovery is make sure you got a copy offsite. But then I can go to that and restore somewhere else and get up and running in some other location. It's defense in depth, right? High availability keeps your servers up and running, makes sure that the application is responsive and that you're being able to use it in the event of certain hardware failures. But then you also have disaster recovery to protect you against some of these other scenarios, things like, again, logical corruption of the database, loss of large environments like a data center or something, what have you. Well, now that we have a reliable, high-performance, low-latency, backed-up, and DR-capable database, let's actually pivot a little bit. I want to talk about building things with SQL. Kind of my first thought is, Mike, if you were to go into an environment and build SQL, what would you do? Physical clustering? Is that still worth it? Virtual? Would you just put it in the cloud, like Azure or something? You know, What's the right platform, or, or does it, it depend, you know, air, air quotes? Well, it, it always depends, right? <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about building out a SQL Server environment for for an enterprise first. Okay, uh, you know I've got to come in and I've got to stand up you know a series of SQL servers to host you know, a line of business operations, and for that I would uh, nowadays I'd be going virtual. You know, there's a time where I would go physical. And simply because DBAs are very protective of their resources, right? We want to make sure that every ounce of performance on that box, CPU, RAM, and disk is going towards the database. And for a while, VMware, there was an overhead. There was a hit if I was running it, running those virtual machines. Well, that obviously has been... No, you're right. I'm kidding. No, no. (laughs) No, But, well, that overhead has basically been reduced if you know, to, to very little to where it's really trivial yeah. uh, at this point. Okay. So you're looking at a virtual machine. What's the advantages though? You say there's advantages to using it such as. Oh, right. Yeah. So such as vMotion, vMotion is, is big now, right? Because now if I, in like with a physical machine, if my physical host failed, I've got to either have another replicated physical host to move to, or I'm going to be spending time rebuilding the system. Whereas a virtual machine, I mean, it's, it's to use today's parlance, right? It's a container. I can vMotion that to another host and I don't have to worry about rebuilding the machine, restanding anything up. I might have to take some time to move, you know, the resources from one host to another, but that's a lot less work and a lot more reliability for me. Uh, again, the performance hit is very much minimized from what it used to be. And we've got so many resources now on our ESX, our virtual hosts, our hypervisors to support you know, most of these workloads with minimal impact from the virtualization standpoint. That's, that's really it. And there's actually, I'm going to give a bit of a shout out. If, if people want to know more about why to go on SQL Server with virtualization or go, go virtual with SQL Server, uh, David Klee is a good friend of mine and he is one of the most knowledgeable guys on this he's written tons and tons about and i recommend people check him out to understand why it's it's a good approach are there any things that you could bring to the table on this podcast that you've learned Mm -hmm. on either this is a great way to build a virtual machine for sql or this is absolutely not a great way to do it you know kind of takeaways (laughs) yeah so i think the biggest thing is is just minimizing uh contention amongst other virtual machines so when you think about a hypervisor, right? You've got all these resources that get divvied up between the virtual machines. You know, things like CPU and RAM, especially. The SQL Server doesn't want to fight over those resources. And if it has to, it's going to start slowing down the response of the queries. So what I always recommend to people is, is make sure you set, you know, your thresholds, your reservations 
if you will, for RAM and for CPU on a virtual machine. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm protective of my SQL Server's resources. And I do like the virtualization platform, but I also don't want to be like, oh, you know, I've got a bunch of web servers running in the same hypervisor. I don't want them stealing RAM away from my queries and ultimately affecting the application performance. So I think that's the biggest thing is to make sure that you're setting those reservations for both CPU and RAM appropriately so that the SQL Server doesn't have to fight with anybody. Yeah. How do you have that conversation? Because I'm assuming as a DBA, you don't necessarily have visibility to be assuaged that that's the way the reality is. Well, you know, we talk about breaking down silos, right? We talk about, hey, we need to tear down the walls between the different sets. I mean, that's the whole DevOps mindset. Uh, There is no reason in my mind why a SQL Server administrator shouldn't have access to the VMware console from a read-only perspective. Don't, Don't come beat me up but be able to see what those settings are to see the different performance metrics. Cause you can track all those metrics, right? To see where Ram ballooning is going on or memory ballooning and other contention elements happening. And, you know, have the DBA look at that and have both the, the VM administrator and the DBA have that conversation and say, look, where do we set these that's appropriate for the value of the business versus, I mean, what's available as far as resources have that conversation between the administrator. Yeah, just talk, yeah. basically. Have, yeah. have a conversation. Yeah. Give each other full sysadmin. I mean, wait, no, read only yeah. <laughs> for the environment. Yeah. Okay. yeah, 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 yeah. And then, so we're entering in, it's, it's a virtual machine, we're assuming, in this imaginary scenario. Do you still cluster it? Do you, do you cluster? Because failover clustering really sucks in a yeah. virtualized environment because of the shared fate of the devices. And it really limits how you can do the design. I yeah. assume, though, if you need to cluster, the the availability groups are, are a thumbs-up way to do it. Uh, yeah, so I'm not a big fan of failover clusters on virtual machines, uh, simply because, yeah, I mean, I can V-motion usually, and that gives me the same sort of protection as a failover cluster does. Some people want to do it uh, because it does protect them. At a, it's another level of protection, but the complexity of it sometimes outweighs the benefits Availability groups are interesting because, again, it's a shared nothing construct. And in a lot of ways, it's a just a database construct. It actually isn't – we're not replicating server level or instance level information. We're just replicating databases. So by doing that, that gives me some of the advantages of failover clustering without necessarily all the additional complexity. It has its own level of complexity, but uh, there's there's definitely some benefits there. At the end of the day, it, it does come down to what are your uh, SLAs, right? What are your RTO and RPO requirements? What are your failover tolerances? And honestly, if you need something with very minimal failover time, you might start to build out these additional elements because you're like, well, I know it's a lot more complex and it's a bigger pain in the butt, but it also makes sure that we're not going to go down at an inopportune time. That's fair. And I would imagine a lot of folks are also in the bo- uh, the boat of... I've got an older version. It maybe doesn't support availability groups or we haven't set it up. And then you could go into the virtual world as a team, you know, across the SQL team and or the DBAs, rather, the network yeah. storage virtualization, and also do this this build at the same time. Is that is that reasonable? Do people do that? They mm-hmm. migrate from a physical cluster to virtual and use AGs or availability groups instead of failover? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, because availability groups are uh, a shared nothing construct, it makes a lot of these migrations pretty straightforward and very quick. I've done a number of migrations using availability groups that really, you know, you, you suffer maybe 30 seconds of downtime because you still have to, you know, move the database from one server to another. But done right, yeah, you can, it's a great way to migrate data. It's a great way to, to have a highly available solution, you know, whether it's the cloud. It's, that's the funny thing. You talk about the cloud, right? And we haven't really touched on it as far as, okay, if we're building stuff out, but, you know, if I'm building virtual machines in Azure or AWS, right, it's still SQL Server running on a virtual machine, and I still have some of the same challenges. And, in fact, they always tell you in the cloud, well, expect for your machines to fail, right? So now you can start to build these out and protect yourself against that, uh, still leveraging all these same technologies. Yeah, definitely plan for failure even in the cloud. I'm sure those using, like, US East S3 can remember. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, failure is everywhere. Um, changing yes. gears a little bit, automation. Uh, we've talked mm-hmm. throughout this show about kind of the, the server and infrastructure people collaborating. What about 
working with the DevOps teams or the developers, you know, yeah. what languages or frameworks can you use to talk to SQL and, and do the automation pieces? Well, at again, a fundamental level, anything that's going to be done in, inside SQL Server is going to be done with uh, the SQL language. Uh, whether you're using .NET libraries or using PowerShell or you're using, you know, any other scripting language, you're going to be calling SQL to run those commands and, and interact with the engine. Outside of that, I mean, I'm a big PowerShell nerd. I've been a PowerShell nerd for several years now, and I love what it can do. In fact, one of the things that I try and do in the community is just go out and evangelize to DBAs the power of PowerShell. Um, it's, it's funny because I will talk to DBAs, and DBAs have, in some ways, a rightfully earned reputation of like, don't move my cheese, right? I don't want to do anything new uh, because... I've talked to DBAs and they're like, why would I learn PowerShell? I know T-SQL. It's like, well, for a variety of reasons. And for me, PowerShell, because it's an automation framework that can wrap around all this, wrap around SQL, it just, it, it really does enable so much more process and it enables automation and really uh, <clears throat> opens up the door for more consistent operation, more consistent performance, more consistent builds for your SQL Server environment. No, that's that's fair. Uh, and you talked about evangelizing, you know, kind of automation and SQL. I, I know by the time this show comes out, you have already uh, have been to. I see you're doing a DevOps virtual group for the PaaS organization, mm -hmm. talking yeah. about PowerShell and the art of SQL Server development, which is yeah. pretty groovy. Because I really hate working with technologies that can't easily be automated through whatever language I want to use. Obviously, mm -hmm. I've kind of shared mine with you on PowerShell because been dealing with .NET and Monad Shell since, you know, the mid-2000s the mid uh, right. when it came out. So that's good to hear. And it it's not so much getting the data out, but I feel like handling the infrastructure, you know, standing up SQL, configuration, maintenance, right. things like that, That that's all automatable, correct? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's repeatable. And I uh, this is where I always tell people I'm a lazy DBA, right? I don't like to do tedious tasks. I don't like to do, you know, these, these repetitive efforts. And Obviously, if you have somebody always doing the same action, you know, there's, you can introduce human error. Problems can arise. And there have been a number of times where I've been working, troubleshooting a SQL server and something was misconfigured and that was ultimately the cause of the problem. So I love automation from this consistency standpoint. If I have a script that builds my servers and you mentioned the, the user group, I mean, the whole reason... I did that. I'm doing that presentation is it's built off of stuff I did when I was a DBA where I had a PowerShell script that would build out my SQL servers for me. And I always say, well, you know, and I do that because it gives me that consistency. And of course, as a side effect, because it's all automated, because it's all scripted, it's faster to boot, right? I can, I can build a server in, you know, 15, 20 minutes as opposed to four to eight hours when you know people do it manually and that i think is just that's all the 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 strengths of automation right awesome yeah no 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 complaints for me there and i am kind of thinking as a final thought around silo busting do you have any mm -hmm. recommendations or stories around the best approach or something that works well when the whole team gets involved to build a database or a server that's hosting databases, you know, the storage network server, virtualization DBAs, you all come together. Is there, is there some kind of event or advice that, that makes that easier, or at least more cohesive across those teams? Um, I mean, I don't know that I have anything specific. It's just, it's always been about communication and, and certainly DBAs uh, over the years have a reputation for being, you know, very siloed, very contentious, very, hey, again, don't move my cheese. This is my no. stuff. I need to do it my way. I know. <laughs> you know, and I always stress this to DBAs. It's like, look, you need to reach out. You need to communicate with the other people uh, because you are, you know, DBAs are the experts in the database. I'm an expert in, in SQL Server. I've been working with it for a long time. And by saying expert, I probably just painted a target on my back. But, um, you know, I, I certainly am not a VMware expert. I know enough about it. You know, I know enough about it to talk to somebody like you as an architect to say, this is what I need. I'm not a networking expert. I know enough about networking to say, hey, I need this, this sort of routing and I'm looking for 10 gig switches, yada, yada, yada. You know, I, I know a lot about SQL Server. I know bits and pieces, but I need to engage with people like you in order to build the right environment. That we need to work together as a team to build the right system. 
And, and I think that's where I always tell people, it's like, look, just reach out. Plus, you're going to learn something new, you know. And if I sit down and talk to you about VMware for half a day, you know, I'm going to I'm going to walk away that much better for it and that much better for being able to construct and build out systems down the road. So that's kind of where I try to focus is, is like always, always have the conversation, you know, don't, don't get like, Oh, Hey, this is the way that we have to do it and say, this is why I need to do it this way. And let's, let's talk about how to make that happen. Well, that's certainly good advice. And I hope that those out there, regardless of what you're doing within infrastructure or it in general, take it. And uh, if it works out for you, let us know. Drop us a line on Twitter or whatnot and let us know uh, what did or did not work. Colossal fails are also invited. So Mike, thank you very much for joining the show. For those that want to go deeper into your passion around SQL and PowerShell and that kind of jazz, where can they find you on the interwebs? Well, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, Mike underscore FAL is my Twitter handle. You know, happy to engage. And I I spend a lot of time, you know, posting animated GIFs and snarky responses to people. But I also will put out interesting comments, or at least what I think is interesting. And um, then on top of that, I do blog. It's been several months, and I need to get back to it. But uh, MikeFall.net, M-I-K-E-F-A-L.net, is uh, where you'll find my blog post. And it's a lot of PowerShell. It's a lot of SQL Server. Occasionally some stuff on DevOps and kind of where I think DevOps and databases are going. That sort of stuff. You know, whatever tickles my fancy. Right on. Well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful co-host, Ethan. He's not here today, but we'll see him on the next show. It's at EC Banks on the Twitters, or his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking about containers, conferences, databases, certifications, PowerShell. You name it, it's there. Until then, may your server lights blink, your databases be free from corruption, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.